Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema. Directors, actors, genres, franchise, it doesn't matter. We always have fun at the Film Club. And it's the month of February. We're starting a brand new month, a new theme. We're talking about romantic comedies this month. And we're talking about a new movie this week, which is... The Awful Truth. It's a new movie to you. It's an old movie to me. It's an old movie to film history because it's turning 85 this year. And we can't wait to get into it. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. Welcome to the Film Club. The Awful Truth was directed by Leo McCary. Uh, don't know too much about him. No, this guy is, was one of those old school studio directors who, you know, worked under contract. He did win a Best Director Oscar for this movie. Yeah, and surprisingly... Our leads weren't nominated, or was it just Irene Dunn that was nominated? It had five wins, or it had five nominations, and it only won one. It was nominated for Best Picture. Best Actress. Best Actress, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, so it went to Ralph Bellamy, not Cary Grant. Best Writing and Best Editing, and it won for Best Director. But again, this is like 1938 and whatnot so this is the year like spencer tracy won for captain courageous you have charles boyer that's also nominated yeah like stars born came out this year um lost horizons came out this year like a, a lot of good movies came out this year yeah but the other thing is you know this is also a carrie grant and irene dunvey i'm gonna call her lauren dunn at least once in because this. you're still stuck on lauren bacall from last week i, I know but um, this is the first Cary Grant, Irene Dunn, like, vehicle. Yeah, because they shot three movies together in their career, this being the first. And this movie was kind of complicated to make because there was really no script. Yeah, I know it's based off of a play, but I guess the director and writers, quote-unquote, took the broad strokes of the play, and when Leo McCary got on set... He only really gave anybody an outline. Like, no one had dialogue. No one really knew what the whole movie was going to look like. And he kind of made every actor just riff through their scenes. Yeah, it was based off the play by the same name. Came out in 1923 by Arthur Richman. And this was actually the third film of the same title. There was the play. There was a silent film. There was a talkie. And then there was this bigger studio that decided, let's go. So so you're telling me remakes have been involved since the golden age of Hollywood? Yes. My word. Also, I like how you had to point out there was the silent one, then there was the talkie, see? And then there was the studio one. Yeah, because I mean... Ta talkies are like that really sweet spot of early sound cinema. Well, that and, you know, directors and actors, they're transitioning from no sound at all, you know, we gotta mime it to, okay, now we gotta figure out music, audio, and then by the time this movie comes out in 37, which doesn't feel like such a big leap from the talkies, but it's, you know, we're getting into the bigger, you know, vastness of studios and sound stages and costuming, really big stars. I feel like once you get to, once you get out of like 1933, most studios are ready to go for sound. Yeah. I know Universal, when they were doing Dracula, that's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. Dracula is like, there's so little sound in it, it makes it weird because it's it's a lot of blank noise. But it also works to our character because you want to feel that cold isolation 
no music. You want to feel like... Don't, you... don't worry, everyone. That was just my computer <laughs> chiming. Both caught us off guard. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, that's Dracula. It's meant to do that with yeah. its lack of sound. But with um, Awful Truth, you know, that's... This is a this is an old this is a nice talkie with with the music and the moving pictures, kid. And, and you got a, a musical number in it. Yeah, with, with a is, reprise at the end of the film too. Which is weird. <laughs> which is hilarious because this movie is really funny. This is you know we're talking about romantic comedies through the decades, and this is early romantic comedy, screwball comedy, which we don't really have anymore. Well. Let's talk about screwball comedies, um, actually, in a, in a second, because I should probably tell everyone what The Awful Truth is about. Yes. Are you going to read the back of the box? I, I will read the back of the box. Don't worry, everyone. I didn't get this off of Wikipedia or IMDb. I wow. swear. <clears throat> the Awful Truth, as read by Dean. Jerry and Lucy are a married couple who doubt each other's fidelity. That's a $5 word right there. Jerry suspects Lucy and her music teacher of spending an evening together, and Lucy is convinced Jerry lied about a business trip. When the jealous pair file for divorce, both rush into new relationships, but quickly realize their love never died. The soon-to-be divorced... Divorced? Divorced. Certainly. Certainly. The soon-to-be divorced husband and wife then both scramble to spoil each other's chances for newfound romance. Romance? Romance. My, can I roll my R's? You can. You you rolled it. All right. But is it bad that I thought of Lady Gaga's bad romance? I'm like, you know, bad romance. I'm like, rah, 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 rah. I mean, this is... Roma, Roma, ma. Is this a good romance? Gaga, ooh la la? God, God, no. Okay, so back to the back to the awful truth. After the, that awful joke, um, caught in a bad romance. Awful joke. Uh, so the awful truth. It's a screwball comedy. Yes, right. The screwball comedy was this very this particular style of comedy. You can see it in Bring Up Baby. Um, it happened one night. Is a screwball comedy. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you would qualify it as something else, or is that like it's in the broad scope of screwball comedy? Yeah, it's more like a rom- romantic comedy. I'm trying to think of the well, the gap between that's that's the weird thing about screwball comedies mm-hmm. is a lot of them were basically proto romantic comedies. Yeah, and screwball comedies kind of evolved into the romantic comedies you know today, mm-hmm. where they're these maybe slightly higher concept romantic uh, farcical films, you know. Mm-hmm. These are a little bit more slapsticky. They have these kind of Marx Brothers-y, witty back-and-forth mm-hmm. humor. And usually they're pretty tight movies. Yeah. A lot of romantic comedies now aren't generally very tight. They're a lot more, um, they're a lot more played down. They're a lot more grounded. You know, what can we throw out these characters before they eventually end up together? Yeah, that's like screwball comedy. And this movie, they're already together. They're parting. And... Can they come back around and make it work, or did they miss the boat and this is it? Oh yeah, I mean don't don't get me wrong. In the last like five minutes of the movie, when Irene Dunn is giving Cary Grant the smoky eyes, mm-hmm. you you know what's gonna happen. <laughs> You're just waiting for it to just to happen. You're really loving that sound effect, aren't you? Because you used that last week too. Well, because it it worked in the context. Because again, Philip Marlowe in the Big Sleep was just. 
anyway, laying it down. Anyway, yeah, you know, the last five minutes of this movie, they also had to get creative with the censorship because originally, I guess we could spoil the ending to an 85-year-old movie. I think so. I think we, we've evolved to that point. We can deal with that. So for our characters to, you know, finally admit that they want to remain in their marriage, they wanted to end the movie with Cary Grant getting back into bed with his wife and the two of them going to sleep. I the, thought that's what it was leading to. So with the censorship for it being 1937, that was never going to happen. Because uh, people know about the production code, right? I would think so. I mean, at least if you've seen, you know... Early cinema, early TV shows where the husband and the wife are in their own beds with a, a table in between the two of them to make things, you know, okay, this is proper. We're not going to show you anything racy on TV. I, I, I know I'm cutting you off, but I really want to just, like, lay down why this production code thing was so um, weird for this movie. Yeah. Because it wouldn't allow, I believe, non-married couples to kiss, yeah. right? Like, that was almost like a no-go. Yeah. Like, you had to kind of, like, lobby for that to happen. You couldn't show anyone in a, um intimately compromising position or setting. Yeah. So no, like, sex jokes or anything like that. Uh, you couldn't show a non-married couple in bed. You couldn't show a married couple in bed. Yeah. You couldn't even, like... I'm trying to think of another, like, wild, like, wild thing that would no one would see. But it's, like, you know, no nudity. I think women couldn't show their, um... Like, anything above the knee in certain movies. Like, I, it's it's stuff like that. Like, it's, sometimes it's, like, down to, like, the frame kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. you can only show, like, this much above. Yeah. I know um, Howard Hughes got in trouble because, like, certain amount of cleavage would be too much in a movie. But, yeah, that's, like, the production code. And yeah. this movie had a lot of problems with it. Yeah, so it was a thing where they couldn't do the original ending that they had wanted to do. So they got creative with the cuckoo clock. Yes. So the cuckoo clock uh, in the movie isn't your traditional clock. It was kind of like the stuff that went on in like the early 30s, 40s, where they would like superimpose like actual people. A good example is what um, James Whale did in Pride of Frankenstein. Exactly, where you have the little mason jars with the king and the, the different figures in the jars. So we have the this man and this woman coming out of the cuckoo clock at different times. And they perform the same task, and they go back into the clock. And once they finally realize, Jerry and Lucy, that they, you know, they both want to be together again. They want to rekindle their marriage. You have the cuckoo clock open again, and the man and the woman come out. But this time the man follows the woman into her side of the clock. And then we get the end credit. Yeah, and like, I, the ending of the movie, I think, is... Probably the best composed part of the movie. That's probably the only part of the movie that Leo McCary probably had, like, locked down in his head. Yeah. Because the rest of the movie is shot very differently. It's very wide shots, very long takes. A lot of this is done in kind of like oneers. There's very little coverage, which it's is lot, interesting. It's also a lot of improv for two actors that had just met on this set. Yeah, where improv was still a pretty... Um, early i don't know if it was an early art form at this point in movies i know it was new to them yeah because prior to this Cary grant was more more known for like his serious roles and it was a thing where they did a test audience for this movie and people that had seen Cary grant in other films they were kind of like this is funny and i don't know if i should laugh or not because i don't know if that's the tone that you're trying to you know convey in this movie if this is a comedy or 
he's just that talented that I'm finding what he's doing funny. Yeah, because it is a weird thing, because... Uh, okay, you know how, like, The Room, everyone is, like, it's a black comedy? Yeah. But the intention of the film is to be a um serious drama? Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the... The Awful Truth's, um, the audience's feelings with The Awful Truth and Cary Grant at the time. Yeah. Because it's a, meant to be a comedy, but everyone in it, like, Cary Grant is like, you're a dramatic actor. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, like, a serious guy. Why are you being funny? Is this on purpose? Mm-hmm. Because the movie doesn't get wacky until, like, I'd say, um, like, 45 minutes in, almost halfway through the movie. Yeah, because... That's I mean, when it gets, like, wacky and full-blown comedy. Yeah, because, I mean, leading up to that... There's humor in it, but it's not the the broad strokes that we get from 45 minutes until the end of the movie. Yeah, the first the first half is more like witty back and forth, which some of it's like kind of subtle. Some of it you don't really notice right yeah. away, and that's something that's like I could see why an early audience person wouldn't be picking up on those. And the other thing is the first half of the movie really plays out like this Oh, that's like it's so sad. Oh, why is she? Oh, why are they breaking up? Yeah, they're they're laying down the foundation to see. Okay, this is a married couple. They're going through a divorce because they don't trust each other. And what's going to happen next? That's the interesting thing about it is because the movie does feel like it's it's kind of like off kilter, and the structure feels so weird because um. It's really weird to talk about this this movie because it is a, like a oddly structured film. Because the first half, not only is it's oh you know they're broken up you know they're not gonna you know end up together be together, and it turns but then it turns into Jerry the Cary Grant character accidentally ruining Irene Dunn's Lucy character's relationships for about an hour of the movie. And enjoying every second of it. Yeah, like he, I, it's a thing where you're not sure if he's passively doing this, like it's just an accident because he's a buffoon, or if he's actively doing this because he doesn't want her to, you know, to move on. Yeah. But then you get to Jerry's relationship where it's not even. Yeah. In terms of what's going on, because his entire, you know, new relationship is over the course of about five minutes, ten minutes. Yeah, it's a montage and. I don't know if it was the director's choice or a style to show that, you know, with Lucy, she's kind of going through this courting process with this new man. And with Jerry, it's kind of like this whirlwind romance that he's on that's part of the tabloids. So it's kind of hard to tell, or if maybe the audience is supposed to, you know, infer, you know, that, okay... Jerry's got game and Lucy don't? Like, what what are they supposed to infer? Well, I mean, you know, with Lucy... She doesn't, you know, actively find this man. It's her aunt that happens to bump into the neighbor who's rich and he's in oil. And it's like, hey, you know what? My niece is going through a divorce and I think this would piss off my ex-nephew-in-law. You know, let's put the two of you guys together. Yeah, and it's, it, it, is, it is interesting in that because the movie does feel uneven in mm-hmm. terms of this tit-for-tat um, ruining of relationships that they're supposed to be playing. Yeah. Because... You're never sure if Jerry's, again, a- accidentally ruining it or actively ruining it. But with Lucy, you know she's actively trying to ruin oh, this relationship. Oh, yeah. L- Lucy, you know... Goes in, does a burlesque number, like, totally ruins the festivities. Well, that was interesting that she was actually supposed to do a burlesque number at the end of the movie, but they 
decided not to, and they have uh, this. Y- you know why? Because of, as I said, the Production Code Authority of America well, also will her... not allow boobs on its screen. Well, I, I don't think that she would have done that. But he also kind of tasked it to her to choreograph her own burlesque routine. Mm-hmm. And it might have been a thing where, you know, I don't know how to do that. Or, you know, hey, let, let's just make it funny and do something that we saw earlier in the film. So the audience kind of gets the joke. Because we see Jerry at one point go on a date with somebody else and it's making Lucy jealous. You know, they're at the club and it's, oh, you know, he's here with another woman. And then you see, oh no, she works for the club and she kind of puts this risque number on and it's just like... She's she's also not not Jerry's type is no. what we get the vibe from yeah. in this in this uh interaction they have at the club. I mean hysterical routine. Oh no, it's funny. It it's okay. The actual like r- risque little like sing-song number, it's like okay, it's fine. What's funny is seeing Jerry die of embarrassment. Cuz he had her going. Oh, she yeah. was just, you know, what do you mean he already found another woman? And they're, you know, assuming they've probably gone to this club a bunch of times together. And is, what do you mean you're out here on a date with this girl while I'm out here on a date with this guy? You're out on a date with this floozy? And, you know, Jerry being Jerry is able to turn it around and kind of make Lucy the butt of the joke again. When, you know, her Mr. Oklahoma starts dancing and she's very embarrassed and everyone in the club is watching them dance this, you know, kind of... 1920s Charleston with with a southern twist with Ralph Bellamy like swinging her around mm-hmm. and kicking his legs out and Irene Dunn is like I can't dance like this I'm okay with a waltz and he's like swing your partner around mm-hmm. and round and it's it, oh my god it's, and then she it's sees so that, funny and then she sees that you know Jerry's loving this and she's like well you know what I'm gonna commit to the crowd that's watching I'm gonna show that I can have a good time and then that's when we have Jerry you know. Hey, you know, uh, give th- ask the band to give us an encore. Same number. Mm-hmm. I'm loving the tune. Yeah, and then she's just like, "Oh God, we have to do this dance again." And that's basically the movie. Is just what can the two of these two? What can the? What can this pair do to torture each other? Yeah, it's it's a one-upmanship the entire movie. And and it's really interesting because that's a really good premise for a comedy like this like a romantic comedy like this and i'm i'm going to invoke the uh the movie that you hate the breakup is that the breakup with vince vaughn jennifer aniston or is that yeah, like yeah yeah i mean i feel like i should give it a second go you walked out of the theater for that movie i did it, it took a little too long to get to the point but that movie you know the basic premise of that is these two broke up or divorced or whatever but they don't want to like get rid of the apartment they yeah. share so they're both trying to, like, annoy the other one to leave. Yeah. And then they end up, it's like, oh, no, we love each other, yada, yada. Yeah. This is kind of that same little premise, but it's not revolving around an apartment. It's, like, the only reason they're interacting with each other anymore is because of the dog and because, yeah. you know, oh, they're, like, tied up in business and all these other stuff. But it's almost that same little premise you've seen before where mm-hmm. the two people don't want the other one to move on because of pride or they love each other or all this other stuff. Yeah. And then comedy ensues. So I think it's interesting that this movie from, you know, 37, the premise still kind of works in a modern setting. Yeah. And the other thing, though, is, you know, Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston, they ain't Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. No. Because they do so well in this movie. 
And, you know, again, they've worked three times together, this being the first, and with lack of script and kind of just go figure it out on your own, that's so daunting to to do to actors. But there was an interview with Cary Grant where he said that, you know, yeah, this was my first time working with her, but we just kind of clicked. And it kind of goes with their characters where they're talking about how they adopted the dog and they both saw him and they decided, well, you know what? Let's go on a date, you know, right after. Let's go on a lunch date with the dog. And you know what? Haha, <laughs> maybe we should get married so we could give this dog a nice home. So it's this thing where they kind of, you know, have love at first sight. And that's how Cary Grant and Irene Dunn were, where it's just not love at first sight, but like, I, I they, trust they, they you. They clicked right yeah. away. And yeah. it's like, you know, as like actors, which is interesting because both of them wanted to lead the project. Oh, yeah. Both of them thought, oh, my God, this director has no idea what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's making us just just figure it out on the day. We are making up some of our most like the most ridiculous cockamamie nonsense to get through some of these. It's going to cut together horribly. It's going to make both of us look like total fools. Mm-hmm. It's going to kill our career. And it was like one of the biggest hits of that year. Yeah. I mean, it was a moneymaker. And the other thing is this became like the Cary Grant mold. You know, oh, he's this charming guy that can do slapsticky, um, like witty dialogue. He's this guy who looks like a leading man who looks like the hero of, you know, these big blockbustery, you know, Hollywood studio films who can also play the absolute buffoon. Yeah. It's kind of like what they missed with, like, um, Colin Farrell, mm-hmm. right? Where they put him in Total Recall, but it's like, no, the guy's, like, like funny. He's really good being, like, like a comedian. Like, him and In Bruges is a fantastic performance from him. And I- I'm sorry I keep cutting you off. You- go ahead. Thank you. But, but one more thing. Yes, this <laughs> yeah, is, very, yeah, this is very, very typical of you. <laughs> yeah, but, go, you know, go ahead. But going off on that, that was something that Peter Bogdanovich had said, that, you know, this was so new to the time where you didn't have a handsome romantic lead doing all these slapstick things. This was, you know, more for like a supporting character or a comedy troupe. This This, is a B plot character. Yeah. And this, in this movie, you know, this is something very brand new where, you know, you have somebody that looks like Cary Grant that can be suave and, you know, charming, but you know, he could also fall off his chair and, you know, he's on the ground playing with the dog or he's doing whatever he can to, torture his wife so that her relationship doesn't work Uh, riding on a motorcycle you know the two of them you know not not riding bitch but they're you know basically (laughs) riding on the handles of this motorcycle yeah and it's really funny because i i think it is just funny because you know you're talking about carrie grant here who yeah looks like the leading man and i think people might be um missing the fact that yeah he's funny and he looks good but like what's like what's so weird about that the guy was basically the prototype of, like, the James Bond movie mold in North by Northwest. Mm-hmm. Like, he, in North by Northwest, he's playing, you know, like, dramatic lead in a Hitchcock movie. And he's still able to bring, like, charm. But he, again, like Humphrey Bogart, he had a lot of range. Mm-hmm. And you really saw that, oh, no, this guy is also just really good at being this improvisational comedian in these kind of movies. Which, yeah. at the time, was so rare like i can't think of many actors at this moment that could just kind of riff through a whole movie and get the other actors to break mid-take because the only time there's coverage in this movie 
is when somebody's about to start laughing. Yeah. And there's like two moments where you can absolutely catch it. Um, I, I think one of them is at the burlesque number where the Barbara character is like almost about to about to like break down and start laughing, but she just kind of leans forward mm-hmm. and then it cuts away real quick. Yeah. Also, uh, when he kind of, when Jerry barges into Lucy's uh, performance, when she's singing with... Oh, uh, yeah, when, uh, she's sing- when she's singing at her music recital. Yeah, at her recital, and he's sitting in the chair, and he keep you know, he falls off the chair, and he's trying to put the table back together, and the table's just, you know, falling into pieces, and she's singing, and she adds that little ha-ha-ha into the end of her song, and it's just, you know, you can see that they're just trying, you know, especially the guy that's playing the piano, he's just like... Trying, trying not to break. Yeah, and I mean, that goes with his character, too, because he's the one that's alluded that he is the other man. Mm. And it's just like, no, she he, is my student, but if this pisses you off so much, well, I will lean into... Well, yeah, the issue, maybe. he's far too European. You know, every European always seems like Mr. Studio Girl, people, all right? Look out for them, those sneaky French. But the, the Can't other... Can't help it, can't help it. <laughs> I know, right? But the other thing about the movie that I think works, like, so wonderfully is, yeah, it's this improvisational, like, comedy that's, like, structured kind of weird. There's not really a writer involved. I mean, there's a writer involved mm-hmm. who, like, actually wrote the outline that everybody worked off of and, like, McCree actually, like, read. But the uh, the thing about this movie that makes it a good movie is the fact it still has a theme and a message and an underlying story involved. And that underlying story is the truth, like truth and trust and respect is what you should base your relationship on. Yeah. Without trust, without respect, you can't have a good relationship. And that's the underlying theme of the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why this movie works so well and why you care about the characters. Because there's a lot of improvisational comedies now that just fucking suck and yeah. don't work as movies. And then you don't care about the characters. It's just, you know, it's like, okay, this is something that's going to make me laugh at the stupid things that happen, and then the movie's over. And this movie, it's like, no, you genuinely care about Jerry and Lucy and Mr. Smith. It's like you want them all to remain a family. Yeah, and the other thing is you see at the beginning of the movie... Oh, these two, they're doubting each other. But you know, you know pretty for sure that they're not cheating on each other. Yeah. You know this is all just a misunderstanding. And I know that's a problem I think I've voiced before where I hate movies where they could be solved with a phone call and an adult conversation. But this is a thing where, no, I understand that. Like, yeah, if you suspected your significant other of, like, running around with a music teacher or saying they went to florida but they just ran around with some floozy yeah that's something where you can't just explain that away without the other person just being focused on it forever yeah you know and i think that's why the premise of the movie works that's why the characters work so well and that's why the ending works the way it does but yes i you know that it gets pretentious stamp of approval Which is very surprising. I wasn't sure how you're going to feel about this movie. I mean, it's in the Criterion Collection, so it's like, it already got like three points on the pretentious stamp. Interesting, interesting. So as long as it hits Criterion, Dean's in. I mean, Armageddon's in Criterion, alright? I got the Criterion over there. So whenever you want to talk about the artistic integrity of Michael Bay, just let me know. So are you going to campaign for this movie to be brought into Criterion's library? 
this movie is in Criterion's library. Then why haven't we bought it? Don't don't worry about it, because it's... But back to the awful truth. Where did you want to go? Well, I think we have to talk about Mr. Smith. The, the star of the show. The star of the show. The man that stopped production for six weeks. It was more like two weeks. Because he was a diva and had to work on other projects. He also bit other actors. I mean, Brando did the same thing. <laughs> okay, so Mr. Smith, the, the doggy. Yes, Mr. Smith. He was in the Thin Man movies as Asta. Real name, Skippy. Strong name. Strong name for a dog. Strong name for a dog. He is the link that keeps Jerry and Lucy together. He was part of their... Meet cute that we never see. Yeah, the meet cute that we never see. He's part of this custody battle. And he's the reason why Jerry and Lucy can't just have a clean split, never see each other ever again. But it also works on their favor because that means we still get to see each other, you know, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. We're not too sure how this is panning out. Mm -hmm. Just... Jerry gets to come over and, oh, Mr. Oklahoma's over, I'm going to make sure that I drive him crazy while I'm here. Yeah, and I think that's, I love that bit, by the way, where Jerry comes in and he's playing with a dog and he's just being so loud and obnoxious and Lucy starts throwing shit at him to get him to shut up. And, I love and, that bit. And that's the first meeting between her and Oklahoma. Yeah, I know you're calling him Oklahoma. It's Ralph Bellamy, all right? Well, he's, yeah, but, He's been in stuff. Yeah, but, you know, Mr. Leeson or... Very, towards the Daniel. end, she starts to call him Daniel. It takes her a while, and I think that was kind of intriguing to see, because she plays it up so well that, oh, we're engaged, you know, yes, we're gonna get married, and she's driving Jerry crazy. I love then, Jerry's thing, where he's like, oh, she's gonna love Oklahoma. Isn't that right, Lucy? You just love wide open plains with no shopping, with no trains, no movie theaters, really no... No, nothing. But you like those wide open spaces. And then Daniel goes, wait, wait, there's more. We're moving to Oklahoma City. Oh, the pinnacle of <laughs> Oklahoma. Yes, I, I love that bit. There's a lot of good bits in this. Yeah, and it's it's just interesting to see, you know, how she plays it. And then we see later into the relationship, she's just barely calling him Daniel. They barely have their first kiss. and They're Jerry's... getting married a, a, like three days from now and she just kissed him. And Jerry's on the other side of the door and you can see that she's so uncomfortable having to kiss him. But I'm doing it to get you out of the way because I need to talk to him. Yeah. It's... Man, this movie is, uh, is from a different time. A different time. It is, but I mean... I love Mr. Smith. He's so cute. He did stop production for two weeks because he had to go film another movie. Which is... Pre-Madonna's, am I right? That and so weird. That wouldn't happen in today's age where, yeah, this massive production that we have to get out by next summer, we gotta, you know, go on a two-week break because the dog has something else he has to do. They would just CGI in the dog. Do you think mm -hmm. dogs in movies now are real? No. That's why all those movies have so much, you know, high budgets in the effects department. All dogs in movies now are CGI. We're not gonna start talking about the pigeons again, are we? Well, the well pigeons aren't real. You know, I don't think if anybody knew that. Pigeons are all robots. Uh, they're not real. Um, if you believe that, you're part of some uh, cabal of crazy people. You know, like p pigeons? Please. No, but, no, birds are real, but pigeons aren't real. But anyway, back to the God, could you imagine tree. if I was that kind of jackass? <laughs> it oh, would be something else. Oh, I'd, be, I'd be running for the hills. I'd be worse than a flat earther. 
Okay, but... <laughs> what? Like, okay. Is it worse to be a flat earther or the birds are fake person? You, All right, this you, is your awful truth. Birds is the Earth flat, or the birds or the birds fake? You gotta lump them in the same category. They're they're just in one awful truth for you. Yes, not this awful truth. This awful truth is actually good. Mm. That awful truth of you know the Earth's a pancake and those flying robots. Nah, yeah, that that doesn't work. Oh, lordy. But yeah, so uh, the awful truth. You got anything else on it before we want to to hit out on this one? Well, I mean, again, you know, bringing back to Mister Smith. He's such a cute dog. I mean, I love seeing how he's not just, you know, this commodity that they're trying to fight over. It's, you know, it's basically their child. Mm. And I mean, showing, you know, how cute he is with he plays hide and seek. And it's just, you know, these games that they have with him, this history that they, they have with him. I think he's my favorite scene in the movie when the music teacher's in the back room, Jerry's in the apartment. And they're trying to hide the hat from Jerry. Yes, that is that is a very good bit. And, you know, she's acting funny because she's trying to hide the hat. Mr. Smith is, you know, I'm using this hat as a toy and I'm an animal, so I'm not going to break my focus on this hat. And then we get that great scene where she hides the hat behind the mirror. And Mr. Smith's peeking from, you know, from hide and seek. And then... You know, you see him going after the hat, and then he's sitting behind the mirror. And I was just like, it's one of those moments that you tie it into reality with pets, and you're like, how did you get in there or behind there, and why are you breaking my things? I mean, that just that just goes when you have your pet ferret, you know? They just kind of ruin everything. I guess, but, you know, that scene leads up into Jerry having to hide from Daniel. So he goes into the back room, and you have Daniel and his mother show up, and then Jerry and the music teacher start, you know, basically, um... We have not set up this gag at all. <laughs> well, no, it's just, it's this scene where it sounds like, you know, basically a WWE match. Things are breaking. And Lucy's just trying to keep on pushing through. She just keeps talking louder, and the mom's kind of like, that's weird, but I'm engaged with your conversation, and, you know, let's keep talking. And Daniel's one like, you know, I think something, you know, something's going on back there. And then you see the two men run out of her bedroom. And he's just like... Well, I never, ma'am. He's like, a boy's best friend is his mother. And it's just like, oh my god, we got a Psycho reference before Psycho. Yeah, I want to imagine that uh, the um, Hitchcock was referencing an awful truth when he made that movie. Him and his wife are just watching it one night and he's like, I could build something off of this. That's a good line. It's a good line. But, you know, I love just seeing these little things, these little hiccups that cause, you know, a rift into them reuniting. And it ends up, you know, that final night before their divorce is going to be finalized. And she's kind of like, you know... When she starts giving Cary Grant the smoky eyes. The the come hither stare. Well, no, she pretends to be his sister. Oh, God. And, And she's like, you know, like, there's a minute left in the game... I got this. We're gonna go in for the Hail Mary. Jesus. Oh yeah. And then and that's the burlesque number we talked about earlier. It's that's the thing. The movie doesn't make any sense explained. It only makes sense watched. Yeah. It's it's a really funny movie. I really did enjoy it. And you know, I love in that scene that you'd expect him to look mortified that she's embarrassing him in front of his fiance and her entire family. 
And he's sitting in there and he's loving it. No, <laughs> Cary Grant is loving Cary Grant cannot keep a straight face during this scene. Mm-hmm. Jerry is mortified. <laughs> Cary Grant is dying. And he's just like, this is so great. And it, it kind of just goes to show how funny these two actors are. Because they just put it all out there. And they're just eating up the scenery. And it works. It does work. I, I, I really did enjoy this movie. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I've loved this movie for a very long time. It's not one that I see too many people talking about. I think it's kind of one of those lost films that, like, Cary Grant's catalog because he's been in so many great films. It it seems like it's one of those... Well, one, it's from the 1930s. Yeah. Not many people are going back to watch screwball comedies of the 1930s unless it's, like, a homework kind of kind of movie. Yeah. But this movie's actually a really good movie. This movie is a lot of fun. I, I like I said, the stories there, the themes are there. It's a well stru- it's a well made movie. Yeah. It's just structure kind of funky, which yeah. is why we've been talking about isolated scenes in no context because that's like the only way you can talk about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird the way that it was made, but I mean, Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, you know, really really are the glue that kept this movie afloat because i think if it had been two other actors it might have just been one of those movies where didn't work but nice try but i think these two together you know they were just able to create magic and that's why this movie i mean it's on criterion so people are still watching it you know some people still have interest in it and uh yeah i'm I'm glad you liked it uh, interesting fact about this movie before we go. The Boo final fact. Yes. The Boo trivia corner. Yes. In 2012 in Vanity Fair, this movie was ranked as one of the 25 most fashionable films ever made in Hollywood. Ooh, most fashionable films ever made. Yes. How and fashionable. Exactly. And I mean, you look at the way that Lucy's dressed in the movie, and mm-hmm. I mean... She's in these beautiful coats. The dumbest of hats. Hats, yeah. I've never understood women's hats in fashion history. Because some of them, like, oh, that's like a nice, like, hat hat. and But she's wearing, like, almost like a, like a mohawk, like a mohawk looking cap thing. It would be a fascinator. A, a fat, a what? A fascinator. A fascinator. Yeah. What's a, is that what that, are yeah. fascinators hats? Yeah. I'm, I'm learning something new today. I know. That's but, fascinating. Exactly. Indubitably. A fascinator. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, and I mean, you just see these beautiful costumes that she's wearing. I mean, Cary Grant, how could he not look good in a suit, in a tux? Mm. But, you know, we, even Daniel, we see him and most of the time he's, you know, in a tux. So it's, you know, people are very well dressed in this movie. And I think Jerry's early date, the one, the, the Gone with the Wind routine date. Uh, she sees Lucy walk into the club and she goes, wow, she looks so beautiful. And it's like, you know, this huge superstar is walking into this club, even though Irene Dunn, she is a very well-known actress, you know, is walking into this club and you're just supposed to think, oh, she's another socialite of this time. Of course, she's, you know, wearing a beautiful coat and her fascinator. But yeah, fascinating, fascinating. But yeah, I thought that was interesting that this was one of the most uh fashionable movies in hollywood history that is a very interesting factoid weird one but i like it i try but your final thought on the awful truth 
for me, two thumbs up. I love this movie. Uh, it is free on public domain. So if you can't find the DVD, you can find it there. I would highly recommend you watch it. Yes, and I really enjoyed this uh, this movie, The Awful Truth. Two big thumbs up. I'd never seen it before. A lot of comedies of this era, especially these like romantic-y screwball comedies, don't really land for me. This one landed really well. I really did enjoy it. And uh, sorry, this is a, a little bit of a shorter episode this week, but next week we're talking about something basically different. It's also romantic comedy, but a totally different movie. It's something that Dean likes. I do like it. It is The Apartment, directed by Billy Wilder, starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. And uh, I'm very excited to watch it. Have you ever seen it before? I have not, so this is going to be brand new to me. I cannot wait. This I think the movie won like five or six Oscars. It's a big winner. It's uh, a this, lot of fun. This is the 50s or the 60s? 1960. Okay, so right on a new decade. Yeah, it's a, it's a definite New Year's movie. But uh, if they wanted to listen to that, where can they go? If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Anchor FM, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. And you can go there, leave a like, comment, and subscribe. And if we actually get the technology to work, we might actually have a video version of the apartment podcast up at that point. If we can get it to work. Possibly, but we're not guaranteeing anything. No promises. No nothing. No nothing. But you can also follow us on social. You can you can also follow us on social media. I swear he's not drunk. But you can find us on Instagram at the Film Club Podcast, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, uh, movie trivia, and our random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good night, everybody. Week, everybody. I am flubbing everything tonight. He's drunk after all.